Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe, the podcast series for beginner web developers and general web enthusiasts. Now, introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Keynes, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we're lucky to be joined yet again by a good friend of the show, Scott Voloshin. How are you doing, Scott? Hi, thanks for having me on. Well, thank you again for coming on, man. I think it's been like three times this year so far. So uh, yeah, let's keep this streak going. <laughs> it's good. Awesome. How, how are you doing though? Uh, things are fine. I'm quite busy actually doing various contracting work. Um, um, but yeah, the usual life of an independent software contractor. <laughs> Do you find it comes in like ebbs and flows or do you kind of have a consistent work-life balance? Yeah, it does come in ebbs and flows. And um, so, yes, it's, you tend to be very busy and then um, not so busy. And in the down times, I'm, I'm, I really should be doing stuff like doing more writing and stuff like that, uh, which I should do. And I haven't, but there you go. Oh, well, you know, you need to have some breaks in between, you know. <laughs> yeah. One thing actually that you came up um, on your Twitter feed, I think it was last week and you retweeted it and then I subsequently retweeted it as well, uh, was this, it was a series by, I think it was Chris Crychow uh, and he's, it's entitled Exploring Four Languages. Uh, and it was really interesting because he essentially took your DDD book examples and has started to write them in different languages and kind of, you know, explore how different languages tackle these kind of aspects. And I just wondered, like, it must be brilliant for you, you know, to see people taking these examples and kind of using them and ex- expanding on them. Yeah, it's really nice. Um, it's it's really kind of a, a nice feeling when someone's actually using your book and they're finding it useful and stuff. Uh, yeah, he's he's doing it in uh, Rust, Elm, F-sharp, and Reason. And trying to see, I guess he's mainly a Rust person. He's a, I think he's done a lot of Rust blogging. Um, but he's, he was curious about using some other languages, and he thought this would be a good uh, uh, way of trying out, it, you know, trying out other languages in the context of of doing domain-driven design or type-driven design. And it's actually very interesting. I mean, I think um, Rust is very different from the other three because of the whole um, how it does memory management and the whole ownership thing. Is uh, you can't just create stuff you know, on the fly and, and do uh, garbage collection. So the other three languages are garbage collected. I think that quite makes quite a big difference. And then um, I think Reason, I mean, Reason is basically OCaml behind the scenes, which is, of course, very close to F-sharp. So the main difference with Reason is really the syntax. It's got the, the C-style syntax with curly braces, and it's got a tool chain. Um, so it's got the OCaml tool chain, and then it's got some JavaScript tool chain on top of that. And I think that some of the problems he's having are to do with you have to know, like like most things, there's there's leaky abstractions. You can say, well, we're just using this language, um, but when it's built on top of another language, which is built on top of another language, you have to understand when something goes wrong. You have to understand everything in the whole tool chain, and so you have to really understand how a camel works, and you have to understand how JavaScript works, and how the JavaScript ecosystem works, and you know, Webpack and Node and Babel and all the, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what the tooltune is, but it's never that simple, unfortunately. I think that's so true, isn't it? Like, and I think it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned that, you know, like kind of the tool chain and it's even the case of things like Clojure and Scala, uh, you know, they're built on the JVM, but you kind of, although they're different languages, you still have to understand and respect what the JVM does and how it kind of maps it, uh, which is obviously a very Java world. 
similar with the CLR. It is. It's the same thing with people coming to F Sharp for the first time, and it's like all I want to do is write some code, and I have to understand all this .NET stuff. Uh, and I have a lot of sympathy for that. I mean, languages that don't have that have con- complete control over their toolchain, like OCaml or something. Um, it's a lot easier. I think in some ways it's easier to get started. I mean, the downside is the ecosystem is a lot smaller. And I mean, once you do understand the .NET toolchain, you can use any .NET language. It's the same thing. Once you understand how the JVM works, you know whether you use Scala or Kotlin or or Clojure or whatever. I mean, it, you know the behind the scenes stuff is going to be working the same way. So it's a, it's it's a it's a plus and a minus. I think. Yeah, it's kind of that initial hit for the fact of, you know, the portability, expandability in the future. I suppose not really portability. That's the Java philosophy it was meant to be. Uh, But, you know, that kind of way of, you know, you're being able to explore and take new languages and different libraries from different languages. And I mean, it's interesting, actually, in your F-sharp work, do you you take advantage of that? Do you use a lot of C-sharp languages and uh, C-sharp libraries, sorry, and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, for example, um, you know, I'm using in F Sharp. I use Dapper, which is a database library written in C Sharp. Um, there's obviously a lot of F Sharp libraries you can use directly, or you often have F Sharp wrappers on top of. So, for example, uh, for testing, you might use NUnit, but you might have an F Sharp wrapper on top of NUnit, but you're still using NUnit behind the scenes or, or whatever the testing framework is. Um, and if you're doing you know, uh, the, the .NET libraries are already massive. I mean, they're built-in massive ones. So if you're doing HTTP stuff, um, you have to understand the .NET HTTP code or the, the file, you know, files and I.O. stuff, writing to a file. You're basically using the, the .NET file library for doing that. So you have to understand that. And they're very – they're written – typically when you go to the documentation, the documentation is written in C-sharp, C-sharp examples. Um, and it's very object oriented. Uh, it's not necessarily designed to be functional friendly. So a lot of time people do write F sharp wrappers on top of things to make them a bit more functional friendly. Now that makes sense. Like a nice thin wrapper that then kind of goes, yeah, provides it in the con- the way that you would want to use it in a functional world. Exactly. But the nice thing is you don't have to. I mean, with .NET and the same thing with Java, almost certainly there's some. You want a library that does something. There's a library that does it. And you don't have to in other in other languages because they they have a much smaller ecosystem. So you, you may well have to write your own library for something. It probably doesn't exist. You can just download it. So there's the, there's the, there's, a, there's a, like I say there's the positive of being part of .NET or, or JVM. Um, the, yeah, the downside I think it and it, it sort of depends on the environment. If you're in an enterprise environment, or if you're working with a big team, the 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 hit of using JVM or, or the CLR um, is, you know, people there already understand it. The ops team already understand it. You're not using – and if, you're, if you've got C-sharp developers or Java developers, you can train them on the new language. You know, Java people can pick up Kotlin or Scala and C-sharp people can pick up F-sharp. It's not – you don't have to learn the new tool chains. But if you're a hobbyist, if you're just working at home – and you're and you're new and you're you're just looking for a new language. Sometimes that is a big hit. You know, sometimes you just want something where you can just run it and it just works, and you don't have to worry about anything else. So it's not you know. There's a lot of different things you need. Different there's different environments. You know, different different environments need different tools. So hobbyists are different from enterprise people, which are different from games developers, which are different from you know. So there's no. I don't think there's one size fits all. 
No, absolutely. And it is interesting because, you know, you mentioned with Reason ML that it has a tool chain and a build tool chain that allows it to compile down to JavaScript. And JavaScript has, has become the de facto now because it's everywhere in the browsers. It's become the de facto assembly of the web. I'm not going to say web assembly because that's its whole different thing. Um, but it is interesting, like you say, that fundamentally, obviously, these languages are all built on top. Like, I mean, you even have things like Scala.js and you know, closure script and all these different languages. I don't know whether F sharp, I'm sure there must be an F sharp that compiles down to JavaScript. There absolutely is. It's called Fable. And there's a library with it called Elmish, which makes F sharp look very much like Elm. Wow. And it's just everything, isn't it? And I'm just wondering, what is your opinion on all this kind of, you know, do you feel that it's a good thing or do you feel that we're kind of, like, do you think there's too many layers of abstraction? I think the, I think I'm glad that there is a standard thing that we can all rely on i mean it's it's the bad news is it's javascript but the good thing is it's um we, it's, standard. All, it's standard yes i mean i think WebAssembly, when that comes along will be a, a, a step forward there because we'll have a, a very consistent um thing that we can build on um, but in terms of actually coding in javascript i don't do very much front-end stuff but I, I, I mean, just using JavaScript and the whole and the whole JavaScript ecosystem with uh, NPM and stuff, it just just from what I read about it, it just seems like a nightmare. So using using a statically typed language which which generates JavaScript seems to me a much better way, or even something like TypeScript, you know. But just something which is um, that we're not where you're not dealing with JavaScript directly that makes me happy. Yeah. It's like it's like <laughs> writing it's like it's like writing assembly, you know. That's exactly it. Like, yeah, the reason we've got C. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of high-level languages. So like I say, the problem is you have the leaky, leaky abstraction. If we, I think, that compiling to JavaScript, then you, you get stuck into the JavaScript tool chain, and then you have to understand how that works. But if we could bypass that altogether, and you could literally compile to WebAssembly in your own tool chain and not use NPM and not use all this stuff, I think the experience, the development experience would be a lot better. If you get errors or you get a stack trace from these compiled languages, or you know they've been you know transpiled down into JavaScript, it, they are very hard to understand because you don't know whether it's actually your code that's the problem. It could be the transpiler that's the problem. It could be a combination of both. Yeah, exactly. And and that, and luckily, I think um, a lot of the transpilers do generate quite nice JavaScripts. Um, I mean, I know, I know Fable generates JavaScript, the kind of JavaScript you would have written if you'd written JavaScript in the first place. So it's not full of weird stuff that you couldn't understand. But even so, yeah, you do need to understand. It's a leaky abstraction. You need to. It's it's if you're already a JavaScript programmer and you're looking for something better, I think that's a good approach. If you're if you're if you're not a JavaScript programmer, just you know using a, a statically typed language like Reason or, or Elm or something. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna get rid of ninety nine percent of your problems, but you know there's gonna be the extra one percent which will drive you nuts. Absolutely, yeah, I think that's a great way of thinking. Going up that way from knowing understanding JavaScript, going upwards as opposed to. I mean, it's interesting because in all these in all our languages now, these high level languages that compile down into C or then they compile down into assembly, we don't typically think right. You must learn the assembly first, or you must learn the C first. Um, but in the case of like the JavaScript world, because it's such a complex language in itself and it's got its you know little quirks and everything you do kind of have to understand it because i suppose it's reached that point where there's just so much level of abstraction 
Yeah, I mean, typically you're using, if you're using JavaScript, you're going to be using packages from NPM and you're going to be using, I don't know, Webpack and Grunt or I don't know. I, mean, I keep I lose track of what the latest thing is. And you might be using, you might be using a framework like React or something. So you're using, you're using React from inside a statically typed language or something. And I mean, I don't know. I just, it's complicated. You have, you've got a foot on either side of the, of the thing. I mean, with assembly, you don't have to do that, you know. That's it. So, so we went back and forth on Twitter uh, about, you know, kind of what we could talk, discuss in another show. You brought up uh, a great talk that you did last year, uh, which was called Designing with Capabilities. And it was interesting because we actually spoke about this a little bit when we talked about your 13 ways to draw a turtle. I thought it'd be great, maybe, you know, we can to kind of go into it in more depth. You know, it brought up some really interesting points and it really did kind of highlight the the idea of good code versus good design and kind of the blend of the both. Um, and there was actually a really interesting blog post that came out on Hacker Noon last week, which kind of solidified a couple of points, um, especially in the code domain, uh, which was called the non-secret formula for writing better code. And I'll, I'll bring these up and I thought it'd be really great. Maybe we can then kind of discuss them and maybe, you know, if you've got any, share your thoughts on it. And then we move on into maybe some of the architecture stuff that you, you mentioned in the talk. What he highlighted was the fact of readability, simplicity, and consistency. And there was a couple of bits there that he mentioned, which was like the idea of the zero comment policy, uh, which we're all very you know familiar with. The fact you want to focus the code, you know, make the code readable. Uh, the fact if you use a comment, you're typically making the code too complex to understand and comprehend. And co- you know, comments they they start, they could become stale very quick. Uh, it was interesting when he brought up. They also brought up the to do policy, uh, the zero to do policy. So typically in corporate, we will definitely see this in corporate co- code base where you know people will treat their uh, code as like a Jira board or like to-do board, so they'll put that in. Um, the self-documenting code is interesting, like with helper variables um, and like the fact that the variable name is the why and the assignment of it is actually the how and, you know, how you can use... Uh, you know, you can essentially use kind of these helper variables and variables to help guide and document your code as opposed to using comments. He then mentioned the break early philosophy. Uh, and that is a very interesting one where having these crazy if conditions to then return and really kind of keeping your code and most important path on the first indentation. And then he mentioned immutability. You know, I mean, we spoke about this on the show a lot, you know, especially in the functional domain, how much easier it is to comprehend. Uh, but I think he kind of mainly, you know, we, we were talking about immutable data structures and stuff. He was specifically saying you know like that const um in javascript and stuff where assignment of a variable only happens once so i know that it's going to maintain to be you know stay that way Uh, and then the last thing was like the one line of code per thought um which is a really interesting one um so i've just kind of rattled those off but i thought it'd be really interesting maybe to get your opinion and kind of you know what you feel about what, what to you feels like good code it's very hard i think it's one of those things that it's hard to quantify it's also like with architecture but what actually then is for you a good piece of code well yeah well the first thing is again it's context specific uh, if you're if you're a hobbyist and you're trying to you know if you're writing something which is very high performance code then the code tends to be super optimized very ugly very hard to understand but it might be good code meets the requirements of being fast code you know so if i'm doing something often when you make code fast you have to make it very ugly and hard to understand with weird things and that's in that in one situation that's good in another situation that's bad it depends on the context so if i'm doing kind of enterprise code optimization is normally not the most important thing and so code which has been super optimized and hard to read to me that's bad code but like i say if you're doing uh, you know, a network stack or something where you want high performance, 
or you know game programming something then then that might be this super important to have that good code in that case is code that's you know so there's the first of the it's all relative i remember there's um this it, it relates to this thing of quality uh there's a classic example because this is not just for code it's for any kind of uh system any kind of thing which is made by people you know and a classic example is is a is a plastic pen is that a good pen or a bad pen you know a cheap plastic big bio or something um is it a good pen or a bad pen is it high quality or not well it's not as high quality as a you know as a stainless steel or gold mont blanc pen that costs a thousand pounds or whatever but for you know that's maybe not what you want for a quality might be does it write well without spilling and is it is it cheap enough that if i lose it i can get another one for 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 a few pounds you know so in that sense a cheap plastic pen is actually a very high quality thing because it meets the requirements for my personal requirements which is i lose them i throw them away they get broken it writes well enough you know from that point of view it's a very high quality thing and and an expensive gold plated pen that i lose that's not a you know that doesn't meet my requirements so in that sense it might be a technically a fantastic pen but from a from from my point of view it's not actually the best pen that i should be using so it's all it's all about the requirements what are the requirements sometimes the requirements are again the requirements depend on the context in an enterprise situation where you're working with other teams and you have the, the teams may rotate over your know, code last 10 years and the, and the teams rotate in and out it's really important to have readable code performance is not as important as understandability because picking it up is going to be harder Exactly. And so, yeah, exactly. So those, those are the things and, and, you know, using code that doesn't do anything clever and both, both in clever in terms of like low level programming. So that's one of the reasons I think that C and C++ are terrible languages for enterprise code. But I also think that Haskell is a terrible language for enterprise code because if it allows you to do clever things, um, you can do clever things which are too clever and no one else can understand them. Now, if you're writing for yourself, fine, you know, have fun. But if you're if you're writing that, you know, a hundred other people are going to be looking at this code, you want to have a you want to make sure the code is not too clever. And sometimes languages languages that let you be too clever. Lisp is another good example. Um, you know, you everyone's you, you're writing code that only you can understand. You know, and so uh, a good you know good code. In, a, in, a, in an enterprise context, it's often really, really boring code. It just looks boring. Anyone can understand it. And this is, I think, one of the reasons why Go, the design of Go that everyone complains about, that you can't do this and you can't do this and it ever, all the code looks the same and it's all very boring looking. That's actually a, it's a great it's design. Strength, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's achieved what it was actually set out to do. Yeah. I mean, I personally don't think, I think they should have had generics and I think they should do some other stuff. But I think in terms of their design goals, their design goals was to write a boring language that would, that, you know, that, that would look the same to everybody. And they, I think they, you know, achieve that. So you just have to be, and people say, well, you can't do this and you can't do this. Well, that's deliberate. You don't want to be able to do higher kind of types, you know, or monads or something in, in Go because people don't, you know, you have to have a certain – you're assuming that everyone in the enterprise will understand that code. Now, you could argue that you should train everyone so they do understand all that stuff. Um, but realistically, that's just not going to happen. You have to you have to deal the hand that you've got. You Absolutely. Know? And we spoke about that last time, you know, about language design and kind of, you know, the, the kind of design philosophy around certain things and why you would – you know, why languages chose would choose certain ways of going. Um, and I think it's really interesting because, you know, like, like I, you know, I rattled that off there with writing better code, but really that – 
you know, those kind of points are really kind of directed at a corporate, you know, kind of enterprise world where, like you said, teams will be rotating. The the actual, you know, the value and the, the, the actual cost is really of getting people up to speed with the code and understanding the domain logic as opposed to I need to make sure the performance is ultra good. It's, it makes sense. And, you know, when you go down to things like C, and it's interesting, you said like, you know, C and C++ not being great, you know, enterprise languages. And it's because there's too much room to do magic uh, and to do things that, I mean, as developers, we typically like these kind of trickery things because we like the, uh, you know, the crazy magic you can do. But code should be boring and code should just read like a book that you already know how it's all going because there shouldn't be any oh you know and at the end and it's this you know weird kind of craziness and all these kind of points which he was putting out there really are to try and aid towards that is to keep this narrative kind of boring and kind of you know expected like go is like the language exactly exactly and um yeah i mean i basically agree with um almost all of the things the the breaking early is an interesting one. This thing of doing early returns. I think there's a. It's interesting how people sort of rediscover um, stuff from the 70s. You know, the 1970s was a was a was a very fertile time for software uh, development, and a lot of you know all the all the important language paradigms came out then. Um, but they, they they you know in the 1970s they invented this thing called structured programming. Um, which is uh, was it? Which is not just not using go to statements, but it was that every every function has one path through the function. So uh, one of the problems with having early returns is that you're never quite sure uh, where the you know if the function doesn't do the early turn, what does it, what actually happens at the at the end of the code? And one of the things about structured programming is that. The idea is that there's only kind of kind of one path, one entrance, and one exit to any piece of code. So if you have an if statement, you always have an else statement. So it's not that because the, the the mental overhead of trying to understand what happens if you don't have an else. You know, here's an if, but we don't have an else, and and then that's something you can forget about, and and you you overlook it. Now there's a difference between early returns for kind of guard guard statements like if it's not if it's null return early if it's a negative number return early those kinds of things those are what you might call guard statements but in your main business logic the structure programming people would say um, you every every if has to have an else every every single um, if you're doing a switch you have to handle every single case in the switch because you know, you, you never leave anything unhandled because you can, if you have a lot of uh, returns um, in your code, then you might get down to the bottom of the function and not return anything and, and have forgotten about it. So one of the thing, interesting things is that expression-based languages don't have this problem. Um, in an expression-based language, you always have to have an else branch. You can never have an if without an else. And so uh, what's kind of interesting is you get that for free, um, with expression-based languages like F-sharp, for example. So that's kind of cool that, uh, you know, there are ways you, if you don't have return, if you don't do early returns, you, you have to come up with other ways of solving the problem. But sometimes the other ways can actually make the more, the understanding of the code easier, not harder. Oh, that's really, really interesting. Obviously, yeah, with expression-based languages like F-sharp, the last statement is the return as well. So you always you already, already know that there will be a return and that something will actually get returned. Yes, and every and every f does have an else. So you can never say what happens if this doesn't. You know, in in the case where in this path something happens, but what happens in the other path? You never. You always have to consider that other path. You can never forget about it. It's very interesting how like these semantics like this that 
seem like and like a kind of like yeah it's fine you know look, we'll just have ifs without else's you know because it'll make something easier and how that ripples and how that actually can change the whole way we then do design and how many problems can happen and it, again it's that whole thing of you know a good language design and kind of thinking in that way but yeah trade-offs like this are very interesting well i mean another a good example is um in an expression-based language you, you uh, with especially with uh, without nulls in a, in a, in imperative language, you typically have a variable which hasn't been assigned to yet, and then as you go through the code, you decide well if it's this I assign this, and if it's this other thing I assign this other thing, and it's quite easy to forget to assign to it, you know, by the by by the time you get to the bottom, or well, it's not very clear what what should be the default value, which which is why you have something like null. If an expression based language is, you can't have that. You or everything is an expression, so a variable is always the result of an expression. And so um, you never have the situation where a variable has been accidentally forgotten to be assigned to, uh, which is a cause of bugs. I mean, there's, a, there's a, I think the SSL, famous SSL bug was caused by that. So, um, you know, that, that kind of thing, certain problems just do not even, if you have a, a certain kind of language design, certain problems just don't even happen. Moving on then, so that's talking about the code and actually, you know, how the language is developed. And, you know, we get a lot of aid or kind of mistakes happen due to how a language is designed. Um, the architecture of a code base is something completely different. And really, you know, our languages can help kind of mold that, but we have a lot more free reign of kind of how that goes. And, you know, this concept of good design, I'm just wondering maybe what you could, you know, what do you feel are the characteristics then of good design? Yeah, I think good, is, again, good, well, good design is where it makes it hard to do the wrong thing. So again, this is not just for software. This is for the real world. There's a there's a, a very popular book called The Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman. And he talks, the whole book is all about the real world problems when things are badly designed. And the classic example is a door that, uh, you know, you can't tell whether you're supposed to push it or pull it. Um, and, you know, people, you see people, you know, in buildings, pushing the door and it, and it won't open, and they realise they have to pull it, and and they feel stupid, and and because the design did not make it clear whether they should be pushing or pulling, and he talks in the book, he's like a good design will make it what he calls an affordance, a, a certain way of it makes it really easy to do something. So if you want a door to be pushed, you put a flat plate on it, and if you want a door to be pulled, you put a big you know handle on it. So you pull the handle and you push the plate. And if you do that, people tend not to make mistakes. And it's the same, I mean, anything like that. If you, if you don't want people to do something, don't don't let people do something and then tell them off for doing it. Don't give them the option uh, to actually make the mistake. I mean, it's a, a classic thing is you have like a glass table and then you have a note saying, please do not sit on the table. Well, don't, you know, if you're going to have a tape, you know, people are going to be put or you know do not put anything on this on this table it's a table you're supposed to put things on it so if you don't want to put things on the table don't have a table there or make the table out of something stronger or his example is make the thing slopey you know make it at a slant so you you can't put anything on it because it will just slide off um so there are there are things um you know there are techniques you can do to to rather than putting a note on something. If you, if you ever see a handwritten note, something, please do not turn this switch off. Please do not pull this door. Please do not put the thing on the table. That's a clue that you've got a bad design. And that's kind of like a comment in a bit of code. It's having to read the code. It's having to experiment with the code. You can kind of think of it in the same way. 
That's right. So you have a classic example of an API, and you call the API, and it says, sorry, you can't do that. Well, if you can't do it, why did you let me call the API in the first place? And, you know, that most APIs, you have these affordances, that ways of doing something, and there's no clue about what you can and can't do in any given context. Um, you basically have the equivalent of these handwritten notes, which we call <laughs> Passive-aggressive handwritten notes saying, you yes, don't, this. Don't, do, don't do this. And it's like, well, if, if you, you know, don't give me an API and then tell me that I can't do it. It requires, you know, it just requires a lot of extra effort on the on the on the on the developer. So to me, that's a bad, a bad API. So this is what leads to, um, in object-oriented programming, you might have the you know the fluent API, where you you call an object a builder object, and it gives you two methods, and then you call one of those two methods, and that gives you another thing, and there's only five methods on that one. So you, at all points, you're kind of guided as to what you can do. And you can never do anything stupid because the, the API literally won't let you do that. And so that's, you know, that's, a, that's an example of a, a good design. Um, and in the designing with capabilities talk, I talk about that in a more general way of any API, which is rather than having this sort of passive API, you have a, an API that returns you functions. So you call something and it gives you back a list of functions or function pointers or endpoints, you know, restful endpoints, whatever you want to call them. But you, you get these things back and, you know, at any point you only have a, a limited set of things you can do, you know, you have to pick one of those things. And so the API guides you in terms of what, what's doable and what's not doable. Yeah, because it's really interesting in your talk. You kind of, you focus more on the design of, you know, in the context of security and kind of looking into how security design and polar and things like that. What inspired you to look into that and then look into exploring it maybe in these designs? Yeah, so in in, in the security world, they, they have this thing, the principle of least authority or the principle of least privilege, um, which is don't let people do you know, what they shouldn't be able to do. It's really obvious, you know, don't give, if, if people can't go into the room, don't give them a key to the door, you know. Yeah, don't, don't just put a, don't put a comment saying don't use this. <laughs> exactly, don't don't give them the key and then say don't enter the, don't use this door. That's, you know, because people either accidentally or, or you know, sometimes maliciously, but sometimes just, you know, accidentally or stupidly, they'll do the wrong thing. And so the whole, and it's the same thing with on your desktop, you know, if I want to delete the, the operating system, I have to, in Windows, you get the elevated things. Like you, you know, you need to be an admin to do this. And, and in Unix, you have to use sudo or whatever. You don't want to. You don't want to be running as root, even if it's your personal machine, because you might accidentally do something stupid. You want to be, you know, even if you can elevate your privileges temporarily, but you just basically don't want to run normally as a, as a kind of privilege. You want to have an absolute minimal number of things you can do in general, just enough to get your job done. So that's the security principle, and exactly I can say exactly the same principle. What my 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 take on this is that good security that it leads to good design because in 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 um, in good security it's like you can't do this. Uh, like a good example I use in my talk is an example of a configuration file. So you know you could say a, a very simple example is like well here's a, here's the file name of the configuration file. Write anything you like there. Well, that's obviously bad security because you could write terrible stuff in there. But it's bad design because it's very hard for the user to know what they should be writing. They, you're not giving any clue you know, at all. If you have an interface which says, here's an interface where you give me a key value pair, 
and then I will take care of putting it into the configuration file. And, you know, that way you don't need to have permission to write the configuration file and you don't even need to know how it's structured. It could be a, you know, any file, or it could be a YAML file or a JSON file, whatever. It's like, you don't need to know. So that's, it's better security. You, you, you know, I don't have privilege to do anything in the file system, but it's also better design because the things I can do as a user is constrained to be much more, uh, you know, to be much more relative, related to what I actually need to do, which is put a key value pair in. I don't, I don't, I don't care how the configuration works. I don't need to know that. So by good design, and this again goes all the way back to the 70s, which is that good design is often about data hiding. It's not about what you can do. It's what about it's about what you can't do. And this is it's a classic thing. If you expose a piece of data or an operation, people will use it. You know, it's fair game. <laughs> and exactly, it's fair game. And and again, in, accidentally or not. And if you if you the whole thing of data information hiding, which was you know invented in the nineteen seventies, if you don't if you hide information, people can't mess it up because you, you, they literally don't even know that that's there. Therefore, they can't depend on it. And if they can't depend on it, it makes it that's a less – you now have uh, more decoupling. You know, the whole thing of, of, of being tightly coupled between one system and another system is a bad thing because you, the systems ideally – you know, subsystems should be able to change independently. They can't change independently if they are tightly coupled. So anything that causes coupling is bad. And exposing information – that is absolutely not needed is a implicit kind of coupling. Exactly the same principles that govern good security govern good design is what I'm saying. So if you if you don't have that information, you can't depend on it. And if you don't depend on it, you can't have a coupling. So a good design, the less you know about a subsystem, to me, that's a better design. You should only uh, know that you're going to trouble. Exactly. The less you know, the, the less you can depend on. You should only depend on – it's the classic thing of depending on an interface. If it goes back to um, you know, object-oriented design principles, which is you depend on the interface, you don't depend on the implementation. And so the interface is exactly the minimum thing that you need to do, uh, the, the minimum amount that you need to know to get your job done. And anything else is irrelevant, and you, it should be hidden from you. Some of the design principles being highly popularized, you know, like the solid principles, and that includes things like single responsibility and the idea of like interface segregation. Um, I find it very interesting because actually one thing in your talk, which you, you kind of expanded on with the tic-tac-toe example, it was providing this kind of polar, um, you know, principle of least um, access philosophy with the fact of using a dependency injector. Uh, and I thought it was very interesting how you kind of you used a dependency injection as a form of like global authorizer and how you kind of move from, you know, providing a whole interface, which, you know, in the security, if you look at it from a security point of view, they can do so much with it. You know, this interface may be just accessing the database raw. It could be you know, inserting, updating, retrieving. So then actually just providing a function, which is just this is exactly what you can do. Um, even, you know, the fact of partially applying that function really with saying, okay, this is what you can do and you can only access this user. You know, looking at dependency injection as a, this global authorizer, I thought that was a really interesting way of thinking. Um, you know, could maybe could you explain more about that? Yeah. So the, the, the security people talk about authority, which means do you have permission to do something? Do I have the authority to modify this file on the in the file system? Do I have the authority to update this row in the database way? So the the principle of least authority is you don't again you don't have the authority to do stuff that you don't need to do 
when you apply that to the design from a software design point of view, it's the same thing. You don't have the authority to do stuff that you don't need to do because you don't want to create a coupling. You don't want to create a dependency uh, on things that you don't need to know about. So in uh, kind of statically typed object-oriented programming, you have you often have these interfaces. Uh, a classic example would be some sort of data access object interface or a, a repository interface, whatever you want to call it. And, you know, in this interface, there might be, you know, everything to do with a customer. You might have a customer database, customer data access interface, and it's got, you know, update the customer, delete the customer, um, insert a new customer, uh, change the customer's password, uh, send an email to the customer, whatever it is, a whole bunch of stuff. Now, in any given uh, workflow, if I'm just, you know, adding a new customer from the web fund. I don't need to know how to change the customer's password. I don't need to know how to delete a customer. And yet we tend to have um, these very big interfaces, often with 20, 30, sometimes hundreds of methods on it. And we pass the same interface into all the different workflows or all the different controllers or whatever you want to, however you want to organize your code, which means that from a security point of view, a badly behaved you know, piece of code could you could delete the customer, uh, but from a coupling point of view, you never know, you're never quite quite sure which piece of code is using which function, and so this is a thing of what we you know having too much authority. The the interface exposes way too many things, um, and you basically in any given workflow, you basically only need to do one or two things. You need to update the customer or you know do something. You very rarely need to do all these things, and we have a tendency to put everything together by by entity by the type of thing all the things you can do with a customer you know uh, which is all the things you can do with a, a product something which i think is a very bad design because that's not how the workflows work uh, you know creating a customer might be easy but deleting a customer should be really hard because that might be only an administrator can do that or only a special kind of workflow can do that um, similarly changing a password you know, it's not the kind of thing or, you know, that an everyday workflow might want to do. You might want to have some special authority on that before you do that. So putting everything in, in these giant interfaces is almost always a sign of bad design. And um, the thing in the solid principles, they have the interface segregation principle, which is leaning that way, you know, don't mix, don't depend on things you don't care about. Um, the only one, the, the uh, only one reason to change, which is the single responsibility principle and so on. These, they've kind of the problem with the solid principles, they're very kind of fuzzy. Uh, it's not very clear how to actually apply them. You can debate you know, is this it's still relative? It is, yes. Should this interface be segregated or not? And so, but the security principle, well, the reasons I like the, the polar, uh, the security principle is they are crystal clear. It's like, if you don't need this, you don't get it. There's no ambiguity. So if I'm passing in an interface to a controller and it's like, here's the stuff you can do in the database. If you're not using that function, that function is not on that interface. That is, you know, you absolutely have the absolute minimal things, only the actual things you need to know is is what I give you. And so that to me is a very crystal clear design goal, uh, is a design principle. And it's also much more based on a, on a practical thing. The whole, you know, it's rather than these kind of fuzzy things, it's, you know, the principle of least authority is a very uh, uh, explicit principle that, that doesn't have any ambiguity in it. And one of the reasons we don't do that in an object-oriented language is because that means we have to create a separate interface for every single 
activity. Yes, that's really annoying. Um, that's good design, um, but it's really painful to do. One of the nice things in functional programming is we tend not to, we don't really create interfaces, we just pass in functions. So here's a function that updates a customer. We don't pass you in an interface with 20 different functions on it, we just pass you in that one function. So we don't really do dependency injection in such a heavy way. Uh, we, we just, you know, we pass in the minimal set of functions you need to get your to do your job in this particular context. Absolutely. And, and it's like you pass in that and it's what can you do with it? Well, I can just invoke that function. That's it. There's none of this, oh, yeah, this interface has this, 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 and this. And it's that kind of ambiguity. It's just there's this one thing it can do. And uh, it's always interesting, you know, the interface segregation principle, because if you look at it at its extreme, it is just single method interfaces, um, which then are just functions. You know, it'd be great to get your opinion on this. Using the solid design principles and uh, in, in the context of functional programming and also how you feel a typical in a typical flow, you know, like kind of a functional programming code base, architected code base is different to an OO code base, and which ones are better in in the in respect to good architecture? Ah, uh, better. I don't think whenever you know, in a sense is better. It's better than what you know. <laughs> so I don't. I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to say which is one's better. But what I will say is there is a uh, when you do functional type architectures, they tend to be uh, follow a sort of pipeline model. Because functions have inputs and outputs, um, uh, you know the fundamental principles. Functions have inputs and outputs, and then the way you build systems is you compose smaller functions together to make bigger functions. So the overall system also has an input and output. So if I'm doing like a website, rather than having a controller, a customer controller, and a, and a you know an order controller and a, a something controller, you'd have a whole bunch of functions, each of which does one thing. And each of these functions is designed as a pipeline. So in, in this particular, for this particular input, for this particular path in the URL, I call this one function. And the input is everything from the request, the HTTP request, and the output is the HTTP response. So you, you have this pipeline model, and, and each pipeline is specifically designed for one particular workflow, for one particular uh, scenario or use case. Um, and the, with an object-oriented design, you tend to think of objects and the behavior that goes with the object. So you tend to have these big objects, like a controller object. Is you know, it's everything to do with controlling. You know, uh, all the behaviors to do with a customer go here. And then in your domain, you have a customer, an entity, customer, uh, an aggregate, whatever. And all the everything to do with customers goes there. And you might, in the database, you might have a, a customer repository interface and everything to do with updating the database goes there. And it's, like I say, it's very easy to end up having way too much stuff um, in in any given object because you, you just tend to stick everything there. And you, you tend to forget about that each, each workflow. I think one of the things is that in practice, there's a... We think there's a lot of commonality between different workflows. There's almost always there's some subtle difference between the up, for example the, the the work you know the the workflow to update a customer and to delete a customer or to update a customer and to insert a customer. There's actually a lot of subtlety subtle differences between them. The data structures are not quite the same. Um, you know the authentication is not quite the same. Uh, the logging is not quite the same. The side effects are not. It turns out these are not as exactly as similar as you might think they are, and we tend to kind of put them all into to one pile. But if you think of them always as completely separate little pipelines, and you design each pipeline from scratch, 
um, to me, that means you have a again the, the least the least authority, the least amount of stuff you need to know makes for a better design. And I think you, the tendency for functional programming is to do that more because in a functional program, you tend to, because you tend not to use interfaces, I mean, although you can do equivalents of interfaces, you tend to pass in a function for each thing. Anything that this particular workflow needs to do, like update the database, that would be a function parameter that's passed in. And if you need to send an email, that's another function you pass in. And if you do something else, that's another function you pass in. And as a result, if you need to do 20 different things in one piece of code, you have to pass in 20 different parameters, you know. And so that immediately starts getting really ugly. And you start saying, well, maybe I need to refactor this. I mean, there's a great there's a great quote. It says, if you're passing in 20 parameters, you've probably missed a few, you know, because, you know, you should only have one or two, ideally. You keep your workflows very small, you know. Now, if... If you have an interface, it's quite easy to have 20 methods on interface. And if you need another, even if some other new tasks comes up, you just like, oh, I'll just add another method to the interface. It's the path of least resistance, isn't it? It's just that like I can add another one and, you know, it's the smallest diff in, you know, in the committed log. And it's just, I think that's the interesting thing, though, with the single responsibility principle and looking at them from a functional point of view, where a function is, there's a very, it's a horrible smell when you've got lots of parameters and it can see, you can really clearly see it, um, you know, visibly see that I've got all these parameters and, and the fact that typically a function will do one job one role one job and do it well whereas in an interface you that's where it gets hazy because an interface is like well yeah you know so you know when i'm updating a user i need to better update them and i also need to be able to do this other thing as well and you know it's a lot more clear cut with a function that it should do one thing and that's it whereas an interface because you start uh, batch these things up that's where the, the kind of haziness comes with it because it's all relative to the context you're in whereas a function it's kind of no that's it it does that one thing Exactly. I mean, if you if you if you if you can only have, let's say, your programming language only allowed you to have, you know, two methods on every interface, your code would look very different. Um, sometimes it's good to have the language actually creates constraints for you, um, and so you know, functional. If you do functional programming, it is like every interface can only have one method, and so your code uh, automatically is is designed in a different way. Um, so yeah, I mean, sometimes the OO model is good. I'm not saying that one's always better than the other, but I think in general for understandability. The other thing about um, the functional model is that that everything is always very explicit. You always pass in, you know, a function. Anything the function needs is passed in as a parameter, um, and there's no kind of effect on. There's no globals. There's no side effects. Whatever. Um, Generally, it's pretty easy to understand what a function does just by looking at what the inputs are. Now, with a method, one of the problems with object-oriented programming is a method may have dependencies which are elsewhere in the object. So if I if I look at a method, it may depend on things which have been passed in through dependency injection in the constructor, or it may depend on other fields which have been set by other properties or something. Um, it's not, you know, by just looking at a method on an object, you can't tell exactly what it needs to get its job done, which is why refactoring, you know, pulling a method out of an object can often be very painful because there's a lot of kind of implicit dependencies that method has. Uh, if I mean, if you have a, it's, it's a difference between an instant method and a static method. If, you, if it's a static method in a the sense, then everything does have to be passed in. So one of the reasons why, you know, some people are moving away from, 
objects and towards static methods, which is sort of like functions, is that you know you you, you do have to be much more explicit at all times about what you what this thing needs. Uh, and it's again with the large objects, the the implicit states. I mean, sometimes it can be good to hide stuff, uh, and sometimes it's bad. In general, I'd err on the side of being more explicit. Sometimes it's nice to have an object where all the state's inside and you don't have to worry about it. But in, in general, it's better to err on the side of being too explicit than too implicit, I think. It's, it's, that's interesting because that is the, 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 different, you know, the difference between OO and FP is that FP, you're very explicit on what you pass in and what you return back. And OO, the, the data hiding, information hiding is is its kind of strength but actually it seems like a lot of our i mean this is coming from my point of view where a lot of our kind of best practices are to actually push towards more of a functional approach and more of an explicit approach and take away some of the implicitness that kind of you know comes around from data hiding yeah i think i think i think implicit in general is is a bad thing i mean i think the behavioral thing of in, in, it, it certainly has its place, but I think it, it, for most programs, the more explicit you are, uh, the more the dependencies are, you know, are explicitly passed in rather than being implicitly available. That makes for code that's easy to understand. It also makes for code that's easy to refactor because you can, one of the things in a, in a functional system is a function can live anywhere because it has no dependencies. You can have a module that has functions that do this and another module that has functions that do this, and you don't tend to group them by, here are all the customer functions. Well, a function is just its parameter. It's just type definition of what it can do, and you can replace it with another one that you know make, make matches that. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, you can organize. You can, you can, if, I just, if I want to refactor a function, Literally, it's just copying and pasting it from one file into another. I tend not to have to worry too much about picking up the jungle that goes with it. There's the classic quote, you know, you want to, you want the banana, but you get the jungle, you get the gorilla and the rest of the jungle. And it's like with with functional programming, you tend not, you just get the banana because the banana is the parameter. You don't, the jungle is not being passed in as a parameter. With the OO world, you know, there is a beauty to some information hiding and that stops the coupling. And yeah, I, I find it hard sometimes to kind of reason about, you know, which way, you know, because I think some people, you know, go too far down the information hiding route and too much abstraction and too much of, you know, being kind of implicit and being able to do this. Whereas, you know, the explicitness of a function and kind of just simple, simple case of these functions really can be far more readable. And as you say, yeah, and it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a it's a tough one. I mean, yeah, information hiding is good. My philosophy is you do information hiding at API boundaries. So within um, within the context of some piece of code, um, all the functions have very explicit parameters, and you know everything's very explicit. But the API that you expose to the outside world doesn't have that. So that's the difference between sort of an API versus the internal stuff. So the API uh, shouldn't, if I, for example, if I want to save something to the database uh, and I have an API for that, then the, you know the internal fact that I need a file handle and a database connection or whatever stuff, that's not exposed uh, to me. I don't care how it works. I just want to do this thing. So the the, the, the difference between an API design and, a, and an internal design is is uh, I think it's important. And APIs are all relative as well and context specific because you typically if someone will think of an API as something that's publicly available to maybe you're publishing it or you're using it on a web web API or something. But APIs are just in general cases to your code as well, you know, within a bounded context. Absolutely. Subsystems. I mean, this the whole thing of microservices versus monoliths. Um as if monoliths can't have subsystems with 
explicit APIs between them, just like microservices. I mean, absolutely. I mean, the, again, going back to the, the 70s, you design your subsystems so that each subsystem has a very explicit API and anyone who uses it, can, that's the only thing they can use. You, they can't use any of the private stuff. They have to use the public API for doing stuff. And that's, you can do data hiding and you can, that way you, you avoid coupling between the various subsystems in your program. There's no reason why you don't want to have the big ball of mud. You know, you want to have well-defined subsystems, each which does one thing well, and they talk to each other through little APIs. So designing APIs is something you should do be doing all the time. You know, I don't think APIs is not just like a, a big heavy duty thing. It was like every single subsystem should have an API uh, that you use to do stuff with. It's, you know, I don't think you should be able to reach in. And that's the boundary for the context or information hiding. And it makes complete sense. Exactly. You kind of have touched upon it, but I didn't really kind of explicitly say, you know, like the, the concept that you brought up in the in the talk is this concept of a capability. Um, and it'd be good maybe if you could just like describe actually what a capability is. Yeah, so a capability is just a fancy word for a function that you can call to do something. Um, if the capability comes from security, well, do you have the capability to write to the file? Do you have the capability to you know read the password or whatever so but it's a nice way of thinking of it because it really does again it does the whole principle of least access thing you know it's the capability if you word it that way it's a lot nicer like do i have the capability to edit this person not do i have the capability to edit a person or access to invoke a function that edits a person that's right and so i mean and a good example between the subtle the subtle you end up doing a design differently so in a traditional model you might pass in a repository a customer repository interface where which gives you the ability to update any person you pass in the customer id and the rest of the stuff and updates the person well you know if i'm on the website i should really be able to update only my information and not anybody else's information and there's that's a security breach waiting to happen right there so in a capability thing you, you know you start off you log in and you get back a bunch of functions and one of the functions is you can edit this customer but you can't pass in the customer ID. The, the, the capability that you get back is a function that says, you know, update your email or whatever, um, update your name. But you, the, 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 the customer ID that's being used is baked into that function. You don't pass in the customer ID as a separator. So that capability only lets you update that one particular customer. Um, and so from a, from a security point of view, it's good because you can't update anybody else's data. But from an API point of view, that's also good because, you know, you can't accidentally, you know, do something stupid. You, you, you're you guided um, as to what you can do. You can update, you know, the customer. You don't need the customer ID. That's already sort of baked into the capability. And a lot of stuff can be baked into capabilities, you know, uh, authentication, you know, your, your information about who you are. Um, that can be baked into the capability uh, because they are functions – I mean, capabilities and functions are very similar. One of the cool things is the capabilities that can be passed around. Um, one of the problems with um, role-based security, the classic model, is that um, you can do stuff, uh, but I can't do stuff. And often in, it's, a, it's a common situation where I want to let you do stuff on my behalf. Um, and classic security systems tend to go overboard on restricting people from doing stuff. And it's what's also really important in a good design is allowing people 
to not just to restrict people, but to allow people to delegate. Um, a classic real world example is uh, if I uh, am your manager and you're a new employee and you've only been working at the company six months, so you don't have any, uh, you know, you haven't got your swipe card yet or whatever, because it always takes six months to go through the IT security process, whatever. Um, you know, if I want you to go to the uh, closet or I mean to the cupboard or whatever and get some paper. Um, I, if I have a key, the old-fashioned thing, I have a massive set of keys, and there's a key for each room in the building. I can give you the key to the supply room, um, but I'm not giving you the key to the server room. I just give you the key to the supply room, and then you go and get the paper, and then you bring me back the paper and give me the key back. So I'm delegating the authority to do that. Now, if we have a swipe card system where nobody has a key, I can't delegate authority. All I can do is give you my swipe card, and then you can get to any room, any anything that I can get into, you can get into. So that's actually a much more dangerous thing. This sharing um, credentials or sharing, um, you know, that kind of stuff is really bad. So the the capability based thing, where I give you a particular capability to do one thing, is actually a really nice. Uh, approach for a lot of problems and we actually st see it a lot now on the internet so with a google let's say we have a google docs and i've written this google docs and i want to share it with you i don't have to set up a whole password thing and give you permission to do it i literally just send you a link and the link has some very complex you know hash code in it or some whatever it is with that link you can edit the document um, so I have given you the authority to edit that document just by giving you the link. So that link is basically the capability that, give, that gives you permission to edit the document. Um, it's true that if that if that if if that authority then gets shared with somebody else, they can you know someone malicious can edit the document. But the the, the you know the the downside, you know, you've got the pros and the cons. The pros is that it makes sharing much much easier. Um, and there's a lot there's a lot of other things which work the same way. Uh, where you actually share a link. Every time you share a link to do something, uh, you share a link to Dropbox, uh, you share a link to something. That is basically a capability-based model in action. Because one of the really interesting things you did go through in, in the talk was the tic-tac-toe example. Um, and I don't know, where, have you got those, because uh, you've got the slides and everything, have you got the code examples available on GitHub or anything? Because that is a very interesting example to clearly kind of show how these capabilities can be built up. Yes, I'm not. I'm. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah. Just to, just to explain what that was. The tic tac toe example is the difference. is a is a good one to show the difference between kind of capability based and non capability based. So, if a non capability based, you can just move uh, in any of the nine squares, and then the the API says, "I'm sorry, you can't do that because you get an exception because it says, well, that square's already been." It's the whole paper note thing again, isn't it? Yeah. So, in in a, in a capability based one, you make one move, and then you get back eight different capabilities, which is there's the eight moves the next person can make, and then they make they use up one of those capabilities, and you get back seven capabilities which is the moves you can make and so on. And then when you get to the end of the game, there are no capabilities left. So you literally can't keep playing when the game's over because you have no capabilities to make a move. So this is, it's a, the, the way the design works uh, is subtly different between you know a kind of regular API versus a capability-based API. You can't go, I don't know what the negatives are of providing such an API because I think it clearly expresses the intent far better 
than you know providing just say this ad hoc move method with a couple of parameters and again you don't know unless it screams at you that you've done the wrong move or if it even does that because i mean in the first examples you showed you know you're able to violate that by just carrying on the game or replacing you know a, a naught with a cross etc um so in the real world how have you found to use this have you have you had a chance to use this kind of approach to be honest i haven't actually used it myself that much because um it is um extra work uh, I've never had to write – I mean, I haven't written a commercial thing where I need to worry about doing this. Um, so it is, it's really – I think it depends on the context. Look, for, personally, I think it's interesting to understand as a, a sort of a, a design principle. I think in many situations, anyone who's writing a kind of a RESTful API or anything where they need to do you know, serious security, I think it's definitely worth thinking about. I mean, the tic-tac-toe example – uh, if you if I make the wrong move, it's not the end of the world, you know. Picking the right API boundary to actually use it on, and like typically, yeah, you're saying the Hatos world and the RESTful world, RESTful done right. Um, you know, you will use this kind of capability approach, uh, and it will allow you know the API, which is a third party, to guide through a, the system through the states. Uh, in a valid manner without this kind of, oh, I know that URL, I'm just going to hard code the URL and I can kind of interpret kind of what actions I can do based on, you know, the URL names as opposed to this is the actual general flow of how you should be using it. Yeah, and it means the, means the client has less, doesn't have to understand what's allowed. And with tic-tac-toe, even that example is like, I have to understand, if I can play any of the nine moves, I the, the client has to say, well, the client has to understand the rules of the game. They have to say, well, I can't, you know, even though I could play on this square, that square is already occupied and really I shouldn't let the user do that. Um, with a capability-based approach, the client doesn't even have to understand how the game is played. You literally, here are the eight things you can do. Here are the seven things you can do. So it's a lot less business knowledge has to be on the client side and it can stay on the server side. Yeah, because I mean, even looking at it from an implementation kind of manner, you know, a UI that, if you had this method, one method move, and you would then have to store the state of every other method, you know, how it's been presented. Okay, that person's made that move, made that move, and you're leaking out to the client that logic that obviously the move then is valid then and kind of keeping them in sync with the server. Whereas if you had this capability approach, you could just refresh that UI every time because you know, based on what the API is giving you, exactly what needs to be presented and how. And there is nothing on the client side that needs to be maintained whilst using that because it's all been provided to you. Exactly. And and it, 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 again, you have much, the, the decoupling is much stronger because you only have, the client can't depend, can't know anything other than what you give them. So it makes the, it's a, it's, it makes the, if you're doing an API that you need to add to in the future, it makes it much easier to add to the API because you guarantee the client is not doing anything they, that you're not letting them do. Uh, so if, if you're doing versioning of APIs, it's just a great approach as well because you could always be sure that the client has never done anything stupid definitely and, and, and like you say it's a great thought experiment and sometimes it's great to kind of push this to the extremes like an example you've done so you can clearly see how it could be used i think it's a toolkit i think you know if you're a programmer you should understand you should have a, a set of tools available to you and you need to part of the thing is knowing that you know not everything is a hammer you know, and everything needs a hammer. So sometimes you need a screwdriver, sometimes you need a hammer, sometimes you need a chainsaw, or whatever. Um, the more tools that you have available to you, the, the wider your toolkit, uh, I think that makes for a better developer. So this is another thing to add to your toolkit. 
Definitely. And and on that note, Scott, I think it's a great place to stop. And I say thank you again so much for coming on. Uh, it's always, always great to chat to you. So audience, it's been another great episode and we'll speak to you again next week. Goodbye. You've been listening to Three Devs and a Maybe. You can contact us at contact at threedevsandamaybe.com or follow us on Twitter at the number three devs and a maybe.